If I were the devil, I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree. The. So I'd set about however necessary to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve. Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me, our father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. What'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed, with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey. That, uh, that broadcast that you just witnessed, I want you to put it in perspective for a minute. That broadcast happened almost 50 years ago. Think about that. His comments in that broadcast, they are chilling. They're chilling and they are prophetic-like. I say prophetic-like because we're actually experiencing the very things that he mentioned back in the 1960s. We are experiencing them in full bloom today. I think uh, clearly Mr. Harvey, he saw what was happening to this country. He saw how this country was literally being picked apart piece by piece. And he didn't just see it. He understood it. He understood what was happening. He understood the horrific consequences that were sure to follow based upon the behaviors that this nation was showing. Consequences which we find unfolding right before our eyes. The question remains though, going back to the question, what happened? What has happened to this nation? I mean, by and large, our nation for hundreds of years, going back to the early 1600s, has shown it was influenced significantly by the, the moral principles, the beautiful principles found in the word of God. Now while it's true as what we looked at last week, 
It may be true that those, our infrastructure, the federal charter, the, the things like the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights, yes, it's true, maybe those things were not products exclusively of the Bible. But make no mistake, the people in this country, history shows that the people lived as though they had. The morals found in the Word of God really were the measuring line for what was to be accepted in society and what was to be rejected. And we saw some historical proof of this last week when I quoted the French social scientist Alexis de Tocqueville. You remember this? His assessment on what he saw when he came to America in the early 1800s. This is what he saw. The sects that exist in the United States are innumerable. They all differ in respect to the worship, which is due to the Creator. But they all agree in respect to the duties, which are due from man to man. Each sect adores the deity in his own peculiar manner. But all the sects preach the same moral law in the name of God. Moreover, all the sects of the United States are comprised within the great unity of Christianity. And Christian morality is everywhere the same. Here we get this assessment of the behavior of American society going all the way back to the early 1800s, which we know continued into the 1900s. And it was this unity, this morality. You have to understand, this morality kept back the forces of darkness. Kept back the forces of darkness from literally sweeping over this entire nation. There was true moral conviction. Those who wanted to engage in sin and corruption, they had to do so behind closed doors. The darkness that, had to, that was there, it had to remain in the dark. Why? As I said last week, general society simply wouldn't have tolerated it. They wouldn't have tolerated that kind of behavior. So how did we get to the place that we're in today? A place of utter debauchery. Well, this is what we're going to be discussing for the next several weeks. Now, I want to begin today by going right to what I believe, what I know to be true, the root of the problem, how this nation has come to the place it has. And it's something Mr. Harvey himself actually commented on. It's something he saw. I don't know if you caught it. Going back to the video, it opens up, if I were the devil, and it goes on to say, I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the what is he referring to in thee? He's referring to the United States of America. And then he goes on to say, listen to what he says. This is amazing. So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. This is amazing. Something that he identified, that he understood. What do you got to do to take down the greatest nation on the earth? I say that with the disclaimer, except for Israel. What do you got to do? subvert the churches first. How would you do that? Well, he tells us. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you, as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. This takes us back to the garden. This is exactly what Satan whispered to Eve. This was what the message that he conveyed to her. You remember back in the garden? What did Satan do? He came to Eve and he says, has God really said you shall not eat of the tree? Immediately, what does he do? He calls into question what God has commanded. This is the nature of the evil one. And then he sets the hook by telling her, taking the fear out of it, turning her eyes to look at this beautiful tree, that it was pleasant for food, 
And what does he tell her? You will surely not die. The message was, do as you please. When you think about that, you want to topple the greatest nation on the earth? You need to start with its moral compass. You need to start with its integrity. You have to begin with the church. You have to first take the moral conscience out of society to capture society. Then she'll be exposed. Then she'll be left in a weakened state, perfect state, to be conquered. All that Satan needs to do is done what he's already done to Eve. Just whisper into the church's ear, do as you please. Or, as the Satanists would say it, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. The primary tool that Satan has used to infiltrate the church, listen to me very carefully, to peddle his message, do as you please, is in fact the pseudo-grace message. A message that says the law of God has been done away with. You don't need the law. It's obsolete. It's antiquated. Christ, he did away with the law, despite what Yeshua says in Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. This is a prophetic statement. Yeshua knew what was, gonna, what was coming, what man would do, how man would pervert. And he wanted to make sure that you don't even think that that is his purpose in coming, to do away with the law. Surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Look around you. Heaven and earth are still intact. Therefore, not a jot or a tittle will pass from Torah. You think about, in my head, it takes me to 2 Thessalonians, where Paul is talking about, he's talking about Satan, he's talking about the son of perdition coming and being revealed. What does Paul call? He identifies the son of perdition with a very peculiar name. The lawless one. The lawless one. Despite what Yeshua says here, Satan has still been able to peddle his lie. And because of this, what are the effects upon the church? I mean, what are the effects of going out and preaching that the law has been done away with? Preaching a pseudo-grace message. What happens to the church? I'll tell you what happens. It strips the church of its ability to identify sin. And according to the New Testament, the law does that very thing. It helps us identify sin. Paul says in Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in the sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You go to Romans 7.7, 7, what does it say? I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Go to James chapter 2. It talks about we are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's what James talks about. You take this knowledge away. Strip the church of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, of the Ruach HaKodesh, and you will, inter- you will in- literally interrupt the process of salvation. Let me explain, and I'll do so with Paul's words. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You just see what he said? He just gave us the process of salvation, how it works. It is first godly sorrow. And then because of that godly sorrow, what happens? You have a burn in your heart to godly sorrow produces repentance. 
And now, because of my heart, the conviction that is upon my heart, I listen to the Holy Spirit and I turn. I turn away from wickedness and I turn to God. And what does that produce? What does that lead to? Repentance leads to salvation. That's what happens. But what do we have happening in this nation right now? We have pastors who are operating as spiritual anesthesiologists. They're coming in and killing the godly sorrow. They're killing, they're deadening the pain of godly sorrow. So that what doesn't happen? Repentance. And what will never happen? Salvation. Strip away the church's ability to define or identify sin. And I can promise you of one thing. They will wallow in it. They will bathe in sin. Because it's the nature of our flesh to do so. It's in the nature of the flesh to do that which is contrary to holiness. That's all your flesh knows. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 7 again? He talks about that. In my flesh, nothing good dwells. This is a fact. Your flesh wants control. When you remove the very standard which keeps you in check, which causes conviction, look out because destruction is going to be upon you very, very soon. Unfortunately, when you look at the majority of churches today, you don't find them holding the line. They're not fighting back the forces of wickedness. They're not defending righteousness. They're not making the distinction between that which is clean and that which is unclean, between that which is holy and that which is unholy. Unfortunately, what we find in the church is compromise. What we find in the church is a toleration of sin. And they're not just tolerating sin, they're accepting it. They're not just accepting it, they're now promoting it. All under the guise, mind you, of the perverse form of the grace message. All under this grace message. That is not biblical grace. The Bible does not fall short of warning us with biblical text of this very thing. Listen to what Isaiah has to say. This is a rebellious people, a lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord. I need to stop right here because you need to see what just happened. We just identified in the eyes of the Lord who are those who are rebellious and who are those who are lying children. Now, when you think of lying children, that immediately brings you to John chapter 8 where Yeshua is, is condemning and rebuking the Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil. And what does he tell us about the devil? He's the father of lies. And yet in this passage, these people are called lying children. They are children of the devil. What do they display as children of the devil? We're told as we continue. What do they do? Children who will not hear the law of the Lord. They put their hands on their ears. They refuse to hear it. Children of the devil, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits. In other words, let us carouse in the pleasures of our flesh. Do not convict us. Leave us alone. We want to do what our flesh is telling us to do. This is the very thing that we find the Apostle Paul warning Timothy about. Things which he foretold Interestingly enough, that would happen to the church. Listen to these words, 2 Timothy 4.3. The time will come when they not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth. 
and be turned aside to fables. You need to understand, many of the sheep in the churches today have become a product of this very passage. They have itching ears. They want smooth things spoken to them. They want their pastors to tell them that they're going to have peace even though they walk according to the dictates of their own hearts. They don't want to hear about conviction. They don't want to hear God's law. They just want to hear that no matter what they do or how they behave, everything is going to be all right. So they raise up pastors who will indulge their flesh. With all the regret and sorrow of my heart, unfortunately, I can tell you this has happened on a massive scale across this nation. And we're feeling the effects of it today. We're feeling the effects of this pseudo-grace message. A message that says, do as you please. A message which the apostles warned us. The apostles warned us about this, not to fall into it. We are not to corrupt biblical grace, true grace. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. This is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. In, in, the, in the Greek, it's kakia. Vice means wickedness. Not using liberty as a cloak for wickedness, but as bondservants of God. You just see what Peter said? Yes, we are free, because Yeshua has freed us from the law of sin and death. He, bought, he paid our price. But don't you dare go out and act in wickedness, act in your flesh, and then cover it with the cloak of, we're all under grace. This is beautiful. Don't do it. We've been warned. Jude 1.4. Listen to what Jude says, Yehuda. For certain men have crept in. They're sneaky little men, right? Creeping in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach. This is what happens. They are turning the grace of God into lewdness. They are perverting the biblical form of grace. And as, you, as Jude goes on and says, and, and, and by doing so, by perverting this form of grace, he says they deny the only Lord God. He's not referring to in their mouth or going around and saying, well, Jesus is not the Christ. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it in the exact same context that Paul uses in, in his letter to Titus. That people would profess to know God, but in works, they deny him. Their fruit bears witness of who they really are. Unfortunately, this is exactly what has happened to the church in this country. Men have crept in unnoticed. They have turned the grace of God into lewdness. They've turned it into filthiness. And yet, they are so quick to confess his name. They're quick to tell you that they are Christian, but their hearts are far from him. And their actions do testify who they really are. And it's not just the sheep. We can't just pick on the sheep. Can't pick on the sheep of the congregations alone because we have the shepherds to blame as well. The shepherds are the ones who are supposed to be bringing the moral conviction to the people. The shepherds are supposed to be restraining the people when they're encouraged to sin. When they're encouraged to compromise, it's supposed to be the shepherds that are standing up to protect the sheep. Where are the shepherds? And yet, we have these very same shepherds leading the charge in the campaign of compromise. Leading the charge in a campaign to conform to the world and the lust of it. We have pastors, think about this, 
And I know you know this to be true. Pastors who are preaching the name it and claim it doctrine. This prosperity, they're preaching prosperity. Give us all your money so that God will bless you. And so that you can have all the materialistic desires of your heart. Send your money in. There are televangelists shamefully manipulating the public. Shamefully manipulating the elderly. Telling them to dig deep into their pockets because they know they got it. They know they've been saving their money. We got people waiting on standby to pray for you. All you need to do is send us your money. And I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. I just seen a video of a televangelist some years ago who was on the TV. I was sharing this with Darren this week. Send us your money. If you send in your gift, we have this holy anointing oil right from Jerusalem, from the holy city, Jerusalem. And when we send it to you, then you can anoint your wallet. I'm not making this up. You would think I'm trying to be funny. I am not being funny. This guy literally said so that you can anoint your wallet for that financial blessing. Just send your money in. That's disgusting. Think about that. If that weren't crazy enough, we have pastors living like rock stars. Anyone heard about these pastors or preachers of L.A.? When I was turned on to this, I didn't know anything about it. And I, I, I don't have TV, so I go to the Internet. And on the Internet, was the, I click on the video, it was the commercial for the show. However, I didn't know that. I'm just watching this. Preachers of L.A., okay, i got to check out what all the buzz is about. I thought it was a parody. I thought it was a spoof. This isn't real because I'm used to the public mocking Christianity, right? I mean, they do it all the time, Saturday Night Live, mocking Christianity. You see this happening. So to me, I'm watching this. This isn't real. This is a parody. It's a spoof. No, they're living like rock stars. It's unbelievable. And if that weren't enough, we have the new feature, the latest trend that has happened to the church. Homosexuality among the clergy. Literally leading the shepherds, embracing homosexuality. We have pastors addicted to pornography. Yet, Sunday after Sunday, they step up to the pulpit and preach the name of Jesus. We have pastors engaged in illicit sexual affairs in their own congregation, with congregants, with secretaries. Yet, Sunday after Sunday, they preach the gospel of Jesus. Sex scandals are beyond number. I pondered whether I would even show you some examples, but I kid you not, if I was to print one by one on paper, I could literally put it on the ground here and it would go higher than the ceiling, the peak of the ceiling. And that is not in the Catholic Church. That is in Protestantism. It's unbelievable. Those are only the ones that are known, that have been convicted. It's unbelievable. There are unbridled passions running amok among the shepherds who are supposed to be leading the congregations. I want to share with you a warning that the Lord gives to shepherds. It's found in the book of Ezekiel 34, verse 1. It's worth sharing. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The very purpose of a shepherd is to feed the flock. 
They need to be fed. They need to be cared for. You know, the Kohanim, the priests, were the ones that would shepherd. You had Pharisees as well. What did they do? They went out and preached and taught the Word of God. They gave the people understanding. They protected the flock. They encouraged them to walk into righteousness. And we continue in verse 4. This rebuke of the shepherds. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So what happens? So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. I want you to think about that for a second. Now, this passage is saying that the shepherds didn't walk away. They were still as though they were doing their job. But it's as though there is no shepherd. And when the shepherd stops doing his job, when he stops shepherding the sheep, feeding his own fat face, full of whatever he wants and all the ties and focused on himself, but not feeding the flock, not sharing the gospel, not encouraging to walk into righteousness, what happens to the sheep? They scatter and they are devoured. It's a total collapse of the church. On the heels of this, let me take you back a few chapters. In Ezekiel 22, verse 25, the conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured the people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests, now the Kohanim are what, supposed to be doing what? They're supposed to be teaching the people. The people, Malachi chapter 2, are supposed to seek Torah from his mouth. The little sheep go bleeding, 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 coming up to him, seeking Torah from his mouth because he's a messenger of God. And so here we see her priests, her Kohanim, have violated my Torah and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between holy and unholy. My goodness. This is hitting it on the head with the problem with the church today. There's no more distinguishing between that which is holy and unholy. You can keep Shabbat whatever day you want, despite what God commands, right within the Ten Commandments. And we could go on example after example. Nor have they made known the difference between unclean and the clean. They have hidden their eyes from my Shabbats so that I am profaned. Among them, God is profaned when the shepherds collapse and they do not do their job because the sheep fall as well. Going on to verse 27, her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood, to destroy people and to get dishonest gain. Her prophets, right, plaster them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. So they go out impersonating the Lord. Verse 29, the people of the land have used oppressions, committed robbery, mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. Great description of what is going on in this nation right now. And what is said next is really frightening. Something you have to take in consideration when you think about the death of America. Verse 30, so I sought for a man among them who would make a wall. And stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. There should have been a concerted effort on behalf of the shepherds to rein in the sin, to make a wall holding back the forces of darkness, crying out to the people, making them understand the difference between holy and unholy. 
But when the shepherds fall, the sheep are scattered. And thus, what is the result? Next verse. Therefore, I've poured out my indignation on them. I've consumed them. With the fire of my wrath, I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. This is what we can expect to happen in this country on a very, very intense level. With shepherds not shepherding the sheep and the sheep embracing the lust of the world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. What do you think is going to happen to this country where its own churches have fallen, when the moral conscience of this society has collapsed? What do you think is really going to happen? I'll tell you what will happen. What we see happening right now, darkness sweeping over the land, literally consuming it. This nation is rotting from the inside and out. This nation has forgotten God. They don't want God in their lives. They don't want God in their marriages. They don't want God in their homes. They don't want God in the workplace. They don't want God in the government buildings. They don't want God in schools. Take, for example, prayer in schools. There has been a nasty little trend developing over the years in our country to inhibit prayer in our schools. And it's happening more and more. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. And within these examples, you're going to get a glimpse of where our country was and where our country is today. And what I'm going to do is I want to show you a variety of court cases. And I could spend two months on the subject alone. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give you enough today to prove my point of the reality of what has happened. In 1962, there was a very significant case that took place known as Engel versus Vitali. And this was a case that took place in the state of New York, and it was about whether or not public school districts should be involved in prayer. The argument was brought forth, suggested that it was unconstitutional for the school under the First Amendment to sponsor any form of religion whatsoever. Well, I'm going to provide some information in regards to this case because I want, to, I want you to have perspective on it, about what really transpired. Now, the following I'm going to show you, it's actually taken from the Chicago Kent College of Law site, which specifies the facts of the case. Listen to the facts of this case. The Board of Regents for the state of New York authorized a short voluntary prayer for the recitation uh, uh, at the start of each school day. Uh, this was an attempt to diffuse the politically potent issue by taking it out of the hands of the local communities. This is interesting. So here you have the Board of Regents coming in to take this burden off of the hands of the local communities. So these things were happening, okay? This prayer was happening. The blandest of invocations, meaning the dumbed down is the simplest version of the prayer. That's all this means. The blandest of invocations read as followed. This is the prayer. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee and beg thy blessings upon us, our teachers, and our countries. This is the matter at hand. This is what was being debated in this court case was this prayer and whether the school could in fact sponsor this prayer. They could be involved with this prayer, lead this prayer. Now we get to the question of the case. Does the reading of a non-denominational prayer at the start of a school day violate the establishment of religion clause of the First Amendment? This is the question of the case. For those of you who are not familiar with the First Amendment, I'll just briefly show you. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion 
or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And then it goes on to give, list some other um, things such as freedom of speech and, and freedom of the press, but the Establishment Clause is the first part. It's called the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. That is the first part. And this is the question. Does it violate, does prayer in school violate the First Amendment? And specifically, in this particular, it was non-denominational prayer. Well, here's the court's decision. It was a six to one for Engel. And what does that mean? Is yes, neither the prayer's non-denominational character nor its voluntary character saves it from unconstitutionality, uh, unconstitutionality. In other words, understand what was just said. The fact that the prayer was generic and the fact that the prayer was, in fact, voluntary, it doesn't save it. It doesn't save it. It is still, according to this case, unconstitutional, the law of the land. He goes on to explain. By providing the prayer, New York officially approved religion. This is what was saying. Okay, well, so if you provide the prayer, then you're approving the religion. This was the first in a series of cases in which the court used the Establishment Clause to eliminate religious activities of all sorts, which had traditionally been a part of public ceremonies. Do you realize what they just said? I mean, this is amazing. This case was so important. Engel versus Vitali, that they utilized this case to go on and degradate and demoralize the rest of this nation. Because it tells us that there was prayer traditionally offered in public ceremonies. This was traditional. We've been doing this. But now all of a sudden, it's unconstitutional. I'm, my point is, do you see where we were and where we are today? Now, I've actually investigated the case. I've actually physically, audio, through audio, I've heard the case argued. And what I did is I went into the transcripts. And I went through the transcripts very, very closely of this case. And what I want to do is I want to share with you portions of what happened, what transpired in this case, what was argued, because it is so telling. And so, and specifically what I'm going to show you is the, the opening statement. Uh, it's made by legal representative uh, William Butler, who was representing Engel, who destroyed prayer in schools. Listen to what this attorney says, how he, his opening statement. Mr. Justice Harlan, this is a recommendation, holding up a paper, this is a recommendation by the Board of Regents of the State of New York to all school districts, and it has been adopted by many of the school districts throughout the state of New York. The exact number of school districts that have adopted the saying of this prayer, the prayer that we already talked about, it is unknown from the record except that it is a substantial amount of school districts within the state. In other words, what this attorney is saying, he goes, this prayer is prevalent throughout the entire state. Not quite sure, uh, you know, particular little small schools here and there or whatever, but I'm, one thing I know is this is prevalent throughout the entire state. Kids were praying, and teachers were leading the prayers. He goes on. Before continuing and getting into the specific facts of the argument, we think the issue here fundamentally is the government's role in the religious education of our youth. Did you catch that? The fundamental issue here is the government's role in the religious education of our youth through the public school system of our nation. Amazing. 
To what extent, the question will be raised, can a state participate in the religious training of our youth? I mean, yes, that is the question, obviously, of this case. It's the heart of the matter. Can a state participate in the religious training of our youth? To what extent can it insert in its compulsory institutions prayers of religious observances, the instant prayer or the instant religious activity or exercise arose from a meeting of the Board of Regents of the State of New York on November 30th, 1951. goes on. This authority, which sets the educational standards of all public schools of the State of New York, when he says this authority, he's talking about the New York Board of Regents. Okay? In a statement I issued on that day, and I'd like to quote from it, since it is very brief, uh, stated simply as following. In other words, this is what the Board of Regents has declared. And he goes into it, and he tells the justice, he says, at Folio 84, he's submitting evidence, said the unanimous decision of the Board of Regents, what did the Board of Regents say as they instituted all this prayer in the schools? In our opinion, the securing of the peace and safety of our country and our state against such dangers points to the essentiality of teaching our children as set forth in the Declaration of Independence, that Almighty God is their creator, and that by him they have been endowed with their inalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. We believe that at the commencement of each school day, the act of allegiance to the flag might well be joined with the act of reverence to God. And then they cite the prayer, Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee and we beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Goes on. The attorney goes on. Further, at page 29, folio 87, the regents concluded by saying, listen to this statement, we believe that thus the school will fulfill its high function of supplementing the training of the home. I need to stop here. Do you see what they realized such wisdom that they had, the school saw their responsibility as merely supplementing that which the parents were teaching their kids at home. Not usurping, not undermining, supplementing what they were teaching at home. How so many people had their heads screwed on straight back then. I mean, look at this. Ever intensifying, what is, what's the purpose of this prayer? Ever intensifying in the child that love for God for parents, for home, which is the mark of true character, training, and sure guarantees of our country's welfare. You think about the power of that statement. They saw that what they were doing by leading prayer and encouraging the students to do the same, that what would it produce? They know it would produce love for God, love for their teachers, love for their parents call this a very, very good thing. An essential thing, according to the Board of Regents. Very essential. Now, unfortunately, you already know the outcome of this case. They declared uh, state-sponsored prayer unconstitutional. And make no mistake, by doing so, what did they do? Understand, they voted God out of our schools. It's exactly what happened. Now, some of you might say, oh, Daniel, oh, you're, you're so confused. It's not necessarily true because kids can still pray in schools. We have that thing, you know, they're called the, 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 the see you at the poll every year. That's on school grounds. Kids across this nation get together to pray, right? Before school, they get together to pray. It's called see you at the poll. 
And they can pray before school. And kids can get together and pray after school. They can form Bible study groups after school. They can do all these things. They can pray during school. Oh, as long as though they don't disrupt or offend. They had a test. They wanted to pray. They have to do so discreetly. So apparently they think, you know, people that take that position that, oh, well, we still have prayer in schools that, oh, everything's just fine, Daniel. You don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you something. If you believe everything is just fine, I really feel sorry for you. Because it shows that you have no idea what is going on. Your head is in the sand. You have no idea the dangerous situation, the precarious situation we are in. Taking away school-sponsored prayer, taking away Bible reading in the schools is something that, make no mistake, has played a critical role in shaping and developing the youth of this country. You take that away and watch moral decay set in. Proof? Go back from 1962 and look at today and look at schools. Look at the issues that are plaguing the schools versus what was plaguing the schools in the 1950s. I mean, my goodness, this is common sense, people. Watch the moral decay set in. Having teachers set the examples and encouraging their students through prayer, it is critical to the welfare of this nation. If you haven't noticed yet, this nation is feeling the effects of the court's decision. Ingle verse Vitali. There are several social consequences when you make decisions like declaring a voluntary prayer unconstitutional. A prayer that cultivates love for God, love for parents, love for teachers, a love for the country. There is a trend that is happening, and you need to open your eyes. You need to see it. It's a very scary trend. Little by little, they are confining Judeo-Christianity, confining believers into a box. First, all the schools across this nation were engaging in prayer and Bible reading. Then what happened? Now we're going to draw a box for you. And you've got to fit in this box. You can only pray under these specific restrictions. I'm going to tell you something. Instead of see you at the pool, it's going to be see you later very soon. That's what's going to happen. Because you know what they're going to do? If you think it ends here and you think we're going to continue down this path that they're going to be able to privately, you're wrong. There's going to come a day where we're going to say it's unconstitutional for the kids to get together around the pool and pray. That is what is coming. Open your eyes to it. Let me share with you a, a quote that uh, applies to this situation by Adolf Hitler. The best way to take control over a people and control them utterly is to take a little of their freedom at a time, to erode rights by a thousand tiny and almost imperceptible reductions. And this way, the people will not see those rights and freedoms being removed until past the point at which these changes cannot be reversed. Literally happening right before your eyes. This has been happening for the last 50 to 60 years. Little at a time, taking away the rights. Let me share with you another court case. Abington School District versus Shemp. Court finds Bible reading over school intercom unconstitutional. Stop. What was happening prior to this case? In the school systems. They were reading the Bible. This is a fact. You see this? Where we were, where we are today. Scary trend. Let me share with you the facts of the case. The Abington case concerns Bible reading in Pennsylvania public schools. Now, I intentionally picked these particular cases 
not out of the same state, but different states, to show you that this is collectively a serious problem across the nation. There's a trend. So, Abington case concerns Bible reading in Pennsylvania. This isn't New York, Pennsylvania public schools. At the beginning of the school day, students who attended public schools in the state of Pennsylvania were required to read at least 10 verses from the Bible. After completing these readings, school authorities required all Abington Township students to recite the Lord's Prayer. They were reading the Bible, more verses than most Christians read today. And they were opening them up with prayer. Honestly, how many Christians are praying every day? It's a sad deal. Students could be excluded from these exercises by a written note from their parents to the school. Again, what is it? Voluntary. We're not cramming this. We're not shoving this down your throat. God has given mankind free will. He doesn't want forced worship. It won't be accepted. I mean, we see these, they, they, these school districts understood these things. Amazing. Let me share with you another one. Stone versus Graham. Court finds posting of the Ten Commandments in schools unconstitutional. Now, this is more recent, 1980. Facts of the case. Siddle Stone and a number of other parents challenged a Kentucky this isn't Pennsylvania, this isn't New York, this is Kentucky. Challenged a Kentucky state law that required the posting of a copy of the Ten Commandments in each public school classroom. Do you get what you just said? Every school class, single school classroom throughout the entire state of Kentucky had to have a copy of the Ten Commandments. Think about that. They filed a claim against James Grant, the superintendent of public schools in Kentucky. And what was the conclusion, the outcome? of this case, and a 5-4 to four per curiam decision, simply meaning ruling from the appellate level, the court ruled that the Kentucky law violated the first part of the test establishment in Lemon v. Kurtzman, and thus violated the establishment clause of the Constitution. The court found that the requirement that the Ten Commandments be posted had no secular legislative purpose and was plainly religious in nature. No kidding. Of course it was religious in nature. The court noted that the commandments did not confine themselves to arguably secular matters such as murder and stealing, but rather concerned matters such as the worship of God and the observance of the Sabbath day. How awesome is that, what they recognized? Let me tell you something. I could give you story after story. I could cite case after case, all of which point to a horrific trend that has been sweeping this nation for the last 50 or 60 years. It's a trend that's moving away from God and embracing wickedness. A very grotesque, uh, it's, it's a very perverse trend. And what I've shown you, what we've gone over, this is just more evidence indicating what is coming upon this nation. I am building a case as we continue throughout this series. It's no coincidence that they are taking God out of the schools. Why do I say that? They want the children. Hitler said, he alone who owns the youth gains the future. Where do you think we're going? You see what's happening? Lenin said, give me four years to teach the children and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. They want the children. This is a very scary trend that we're going through. We're going to end here today and we'll continue next week.